Our sermon today will be taken from Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. This is the word of God. God's everlasting love. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus says the Lord. Friends, this will be our last sermon in the book of Romans for the next four weeks. And after this Sunday, we're going to do four sermons on marriage and singleness. And then after that, we're going to jump back right into Romans chapter 9 and continue preaching through the book of Romans. And today, at the end of Romans chapter 8, what we find here is Paul's summarizing everything that he's been talking about since chapter 5. Look at verse 31 in your passage. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? These things here refer to everything that Paul's been talking about since Romans chapter 5, because Romans chapter 5 to chapter 8 is really one long logical presentation. About what? Well, about God's saving grace upon sinners. That's what Paul's been saying from Romans chapter 5 till here, Romans chapter 8, that if God wants to save someone, they will be saved, and they'll be saved till the end. That's the argument. And, and here at the end of chapter 8, Paul's pretty much just summarizing this whole argument again, same logic, same argument, but this time, as a commentator says, Paul's logic is on fire. He's much more passionate about, about the subject, as we'll see, and yet he's still very clear. He's still very pastoral about how he delivers this part of the book. He, he summarizes here his argument of the Christian's assurance of salvation, okay, by addressing two very relatable situations in where a Christian might find themselves tempted to not persevere in the faith. Two, two things, I think, that actually in my experience are the top two reasons of why someone might be tempted to leave the faith, and that is self-hate and tragic circumstances. Self-hate and tragic circumstances. And that's what Paul addresses here as he summarizes his arguments about the Christian's assurance of salvation in Christ, okay? Which are our points for today? Christian, Paul is telling us here, one, how to persevere in the faith when you hate yourself, two, how to persevere in the faith when tragedy comes, and three, how perseverance can turn into something more. 
Okay, he, he, he's telling us here how to persevere when you hate yourself, how to persevere when tragedy comes, and how perseverance can eventually turn into something more. Let's talk about the first point. How to persevere when you hate yourself. So let's move on here to verse 32 to 34, because this is something that every Christian can relate to. This is what Paul says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Look at the words Paul's using here. To, to charge someone or to condemn someone, those are all legal courtroom languages, right? And this is Paul's focus here in verse 32 to 34. The Christian's temptation to feel guilty, to condemn themselves, to hate themselves. You know, you've been a Christian for years now and you still can't control that temper. You've been a Christian for 10, 15 years now, and you're still addicted to porn. You're stuck in this depression, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you try to seek help and try to get yourself out of it, but for some reason, you just can't shake it off. In fact, it's kind of growing, and you don't know why. It's been years, and you still can't forgive that one person that you've hated for a long time now, you've talked to the mirror and to the weighing scale for a million times, and you've, you've, you've promised that these things will no longer dictate your worth, but all it takes is one negative comment on social media, and you dive right back into eating disorders and body image dysmorphias, and you're experiencing all these things, and you're beating yourself up, and you're saying, why am I so weak? Why can't I seem to change? Now, some of you haven't been Christians long enough, and you still have bright hope that after becoming a Christian, those things will surely soon just kind of disappear. These anger issues, these sexually deviant thoughts and behaviors, these depressive tendencies, you know, they'll, they'll just soon kind of go away because I'm a Christian now. But some of us, We've been through the ringer a few times, and we're a little less hopeful. Because at this point, you've lost count of how many times you've said to yourself, this will be the last time. This will be the last time that I lose it. I promise I will never get this angry again. This will be the last visit I make to this website. You know, my resolve is stronger this time. I, I can feel it. No more bouts of depression after this. This is the last one. You know, this will be the last leap over at her place. I promise this will be the last time. And it was. Until it wasn't. And it all starts to dawn on you that you're going to be swimming against this current your whole life. And it also dawns on you that it's actually more like a tsunami than a current. And a small voice starts to creep in, saying, You're not cut out for this. This Christian thing. And if you keep going, all you'll do is disappoint yourself, disappoint your church, and disappoint God. And you'll end up being like one of those hypocrites, you know, that you've hated your whole life. Remember them? Those people who go to church and act good all day, but really inside they're rotten. That'll be you. If it's not already you, just call it quits. Some of us know that voice way too well. What do we say to that? Well, Paul here in verse 32 to 34 tells us what to say. Here's what you say. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him, with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his son, how will he not also give us all things? You'll, you'll never change, the voice says. And Paul responds, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Think, he's saying. God has power over and controls all things. That's what he says at the end of verse 32. He can make you change. Now, what does all things here refer to? Some say all things refer to material possessions. Some say all things refer to spiritual power. I say all things refer to all things. Does God have the biological ability to change your synapses in your brain to no longer be addicted to porn? Yes, he does. Does he have the spiritual power to make your heart meek so that it'd be softened to forgive that person you can't seem to forgive? Yes, he does. Does he have the physiological expertise to regulate the level of your cortisol in your body so that you wouldn't fall into these deep bouts of depression and, and, and anger bursts? Yes, he does. Does he have the social ability to give you a spouse that might help you as you fight that never-ending inclination to seek companionship outside of marriage? Yes, he can, because he possesses all things. So, so that's the first thing you, you say back to that voice. Whenever you hear that self-condemning voice that says you'll never change, you, you tell him back, yes, I can, because my God is for me and he possesses all things. He can change me. Now, now, that voice won't give up so easily, as we know. It'll say back. So why hasn't he done that? You say he can change your addiction, heal your depression. Why hasn't he done it? And here's Paul's response. I don't know why. I don't know why. But whatever his reasons are, it's not because he hates me. And it can't be because he hates me. It can't be because he's stingy. Why not? How do you know that? Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, if you believe in the gospel, if you believe that the gospel is true, that God, the owner of all things, the owner of all the cattle and thousands of hills, if you believe that he has already given up his most precious possession for you, Jesus Christ, his own son, on a cross to die for your sins, if you believe that, you'll no longer be suspicious as to why he's withholding his lesser possessions from you. What else is he going to withhold from you? And you're going to trust him. If you believe in the gospel, you're going to trust him. And that trust is going to make you say what John Newton said. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. And, and that's what you need. The ability to say that is what you need to be able to keep going. What you need to persevere in the Christian walk, Paul is saying here, is not earthly possessions. It's not even physical or biological health. It's the knowledge that God has your best interests in mind, even if he withholds whatever it is you're convinced that you need. It's, it's, it's the knowledge that God has your best interests in mind, even if he's not giving you whatever it is you think you need. That's, that's what you need to keep going, believing in that. And that's how we respond to that voice that says, you know, you'll never change. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. My God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills can change me if he wants to. So then why hasn't he? Because everything is needful that he sends and nothing can be needful that he withholds.
And I know that because he's already given me his one and only son. That's what you say back to that voice. But that voice won't give up just yet. It'll keep going. It'll say this, okay. Maybe God will eventually give you what you need to change so that, you know, you're not completely knocked out of the race. But what about all the stumbles you make during the race? Getting to the end isn't the most important thing. What if when you get to the end, God isn't happy with how you ran the race and he punishes you? Well, Paul has the answer to that too. Look at verse 33 to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And this is interesting. You know what interceding here means? It's what lawyers do. Jesus here is portrayed as, as our lawyer of sorts. And think about what a lawyer does, and this is important. See, when we think of Jesus Christ defending us to the Father, we perhaps envision him begging for the Father's mercy on our behalf. He's kind of saying, you know, please, Father, have, have mercy on them. I know they're guilty, but, but please have mercy. But that's not what's happening here, because that's not what lawyers do, is it? Lawyers don't appeal to mercy to get you out of jail. They appeal to justice. Good lawyers don't say, please, you know, don't, don't punish them because that's unkind. That's unmerciful. No. They say, you must not punish them because that's unjust. You see the difference? And that's what Jesus is doing here to the Father. Like a lawyer, he's appealing to Father's justice, not to the Father's mercy. So when you sin, in other words, Jesus is up there saying, Father, you're a just judge. That means you can't take double payments. You can't punish them for a crime that I've already paid for. That'll make you unjust. You see, Jesus is appealing to the Father's justice, as, as lawyers do. Look at my hands, he says. Look at my feet. I've paid for it. Whatever addiction, whatever hardness of heart, whatever stumbles they fall into during the race, I've paid for it. And you can't take double payments. You can't charge them again, because that'd be unjust. And that's why a pastor once pointed out, we can sing what we sung in our hymn earlier. Let us wonder grace and justice, join to point to mercy store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Justice smiles. And if the Father's justice is smiling at you, who's going to condemn you? Paul asks. Hmm? Who's going to dare go against the Father's sense of justice and bring any charge against you? That case has been shut and closed on the cross. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That's what you say back to that internal voice that's accusing you, because that voice is lying to you. You see, it's telling you that when you get to the end, you're going to enter into this big courtroom, right? When your good and bad deeds are going to be tried and balanced. And Paul here is saying, who's going to condemn you? What imaginary courtroom are you talking about? What you'll find at the end, Christian, isn't a courtroom. What you'll find at the end is the biggest party you've ever seen in your life. Filled with friends and family 
many of whom you've never met before, welcoming you home. That's what you'll find there. And God's going to give you the resources you need to keep going in His appointed time. So keep going, would you? And when you get home, you'll be welcomed with a feast, not a courtroom, by a father, not a judge. So keep going. Keep going. Keep fighting. Keep obeying. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Persevere. Now, in the second part of our passage, Paul switches his focus, and he doesn't so much talk about how can we handle that internal voice that often condemns us, but now he's going to be talking about how to handle those external tragedies that often come our way, which is another powerful force, by the way, that has the potential to to beat Christians down and, and lure them to no longer persevere in the faith, okay? Which leads us to our second point, verses 35 to 37, how to persevere when tragedy comes. Look at verse 35, 37. See how the list of things here in these two verses switches here, right? Paul's language, Paul's words now are no longer these legal courtroom uh, language of internal accusations, but has more of an external focus to it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or so? You see, those are all external factors that, that can kind of come your way. And when those things come, Paul says, and don't be fooled. They will come. Don't think that they won't. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of people have this idea, and I don't think they'll ever say this out loud, but I think a lot of people think that once they become Christians, you know, they, they know that life is still going to be hard. They know that they're still going to experience hardships in life. But, but I think, many think, that because they're Christians, the really, really, really bad kind of sufferings, you know, those kind of sufferings won't happen to them. Don't be so naive. Don't be so naive, Paul says here in verse 36, where he quotes an Old Testament passage, by the way, Psalm 44, verse 22. As it is written, Paul says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What, what Paul is saying here is that those, those really, really big kind of sufferings that you're talking about, that you think you're not going to experience as a Christian, those have been happening to God's people ever since the Old Testament. Deaths, murders, slaughtering. Just read the Psalms. Read the Major and the Minor Prophets. Read Exodus when Israel was still enslaved by Egypt. Whatever terrible thing that you could imagine happening to non-Christians can happen and has happened to Christians. Don't be naive. And this is exactly our source of fear, right? And we ask ourselves, well, what if something so bad happens that it makes true born-again Christians, you know, leave the faith? What if it makes me leave the faith? And then Paul here is saying that won't happen. That won't happen. If you truly are a born-again Christian, you won't leave the faith no matter what kind of external circumstance comes your way. Okay, but how do you know that, Paul? You know, I I think you're overestimating my commitment to Christ here a little bit. Oh no, Paul says in verse 35. He, He knows that won't happen because he's not overestimating your commitment to Christ, but he's saying you might be underestimating Christ's commitment to you. Look at verse 35 again. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Whose love for who is in focus here? Hmm? Our love for Christ or Christ's love for us? See, you and I are flimsy 
It doesn't take great suffering to make us leave Christ. Often, great comforts make us leave Christ. We're flimsy, but it's not our love for Christ that makes Paul confident. It's Christ's love for us. That's what's going to hold us tight. We're more than conquerors through Him who loved us, Paul says. Now, that was an important thing for him to mention. Why is that important? Well, notice the love of Christ here that Paul mentions in this verse. It's in the past tense. Him who loved us. Okay, when did Jesus love us in the past? Well, this has to be referring to the cross. Paul's reminding Christians here, you know, that that long list of scary words we listed earlier, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, all that, Jesus has been through it too. He has, when he loved us on the cross. And what happened? What happened to him? Here's what happened. God used the enemy's own weapon to win his battles. That's what happened. So what what makes you think it will be any different in your situation? He's always operated like this. Jesus won the victory because he was thrown to a cross. Joseph saved a nation from famine because he was thrown into a well. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego made a king repent because they were thrown into a furnace. And King Darius ended up worshiping Yahweh because Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. (laughs) What have you been thrown into? What are you afraid of being thrown into? Don't let that angst make you run away. God's always turned that kind of stuff around for the good. He's been doing that for centuries, and especially on the cross where he loved you. You see, Paul's passionate here, but he's still very pastorally accurate in how he ministers. He knows that different people have different struggles and need different things to hear in different times in order for them to persevere in the Christian walk. Some of you, as we saw in point one, may be dealing with internal struggles of accusation, of your guilt, of your sin. And if that's you, keep going, Paul's saying. Keep going. God can change you. And if he hasn't yet, it's not because he hates you. He didn't even spare his own son for you. He let everything loose on him for you on the cross. He can, and he's willing to change you. He's for you. So keep going. Keep going. And one day he'll bring you back home where where you'll see the reason why he has his timing for whatever it is he does. And when you're there, you'll be greeted not as a judge greets a criminal, but as a father greets his child. So keep going. But others of you, you may not be dealing with internal struggles of accusation. That may not be your pain right now, but with external miseries and suffering. That's the thing that might be luring you to leave the faith, to to, to leave the Christian walk, to, to quit the race. If that's you, keep going, Paul's saying. Remember who your God is. Your God is a God who pierces his enemies' heads with their own arrows, Habakkuk 3 verse 14 says. He's been doing this all the way since the Old Testament with Joseph, with with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, with Daniel, with everyone, and he did it on the cross. So whatever arrows are thrown your way, whatever pits you've fallen into, it'll accumulate to your victory, and you'll see that. You'll see that you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. You see how pastoral he's being here? Keep going. God will preserve you. That's a promise. And that's a promise that's going to give you the strength to persevere. Keep going. Now, however, as much as this passage is about the Christian's perseverance till the end, as much of this passage is about 
the Christian, you know, to, to keep going despite all the hardships. There's something about Paul's tone here in this passage, especially in the last two verses, that, that tells us his hope for us is to be much more than just people who persevere and kind of barely make it. I think it's clear from the tone of this passage that Paul here doesn't sound like a man who's kind of dragging his feet toward heaven. You know, he, he's running, he's excited. He's not just persevering, he, he's thriving. I mean, look at what he writes. He's, he's using five rhetorical questions back to back to back in the first three verses. And then he gushes out to these grandeur phrases like, we're more than conquerors. And then at the end, he goes on to this long run-on sentence and says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What you see here isn't a man who's barely making it, isn't a man who's limping, but a man who's thriving and running, which brings us to our last point, how perseverance can turn to something more. Okay, so, so Paul ends his argument here kind of with a bang. Right? He, he says, look, here's a summary. Here's a summary of everything I've written from Romans chapter 5 to chapter 8. Nothing can take us away from the love of Christ. No material reality, right? Life or death. No spiritual reality, angels or rulers. No temporal possibilities, things present, things to come. No current authorities, powers. No geographical distance, height, death, nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that, that's, you know, that's a clear, logical end to everything that Paul's been arguing since Romans chapter 5. But I do want to point out something here, and I have to admit that this perhaps isn't something that's directly in the passage, but I do think it's very much implied, and I do think it's appropriate to point it out here at the end of Paul's long thesis. I do want to point out that we mustn't forget this letter isn't just a theological argument for the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. Okay, it is that. But remember, this letter was primarily a missionary letter. The main reason of why Paul wrote this letter is because he was getting ready to go to Spain and he was going to preach the gospel there and he was going to plant churches there. And on the way to Spain, he wanted to stop by Rome to rest, to gather resources, to be mutually encouraged, Romans chapter 1 says. And Paul, you know, he's at the end of his life, he's at the end of his ministry here, and he's been through it all, hasn't he? He's been through a lot. And a lot of people forget that the list of things Paul wrote in verse 35, tribulation, danger, sword, all that, he's gone through all of them at this point. Just read the book of Acts and read 2 Corinthians, specifically chapter 11 and 12. He's been through shipwrecks, he's been robbed, he's been betrayed, he's experienced death threats and attempted murders, toils, hardships, hunger, thirst. Often he's without food, he said. But yet, he's still going. In fact, not only is he surviving, he's planning another missionary trip to Spain to preach the gospel where it has not yet been preached before. He's thriving, even through all that. Why? Because he's convinced. He's sure, he's convinced that what he's been saying from Romans chapter 5 to Romans chapter 8 is true. And that's what he says. Look at the beginning of verse 38 of our passage. Paul says, for I am sure, I'm sure, I'm convinced. And here's my question. Are you convinced? 
Are you convinced? Is the way you're living your life in line with the fact that you're convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor rulers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in our creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it? Is mine? Paul's life showed it. It did. And the question for us is, how did Paul get so convinced? Well, I think the answer is because he's been through it. He's been through it. When, uh, when Tati and I first had Elena, our first child, you know how parents are with first kids, right? They, they panic at the first sign of trouble. <laughs> like she'd cry and we'd jump up as if the world was ending, right? We'd rock her and kind of walk her around. <laughs> and I remember one day we're having lunch at a restaurant with Elena and, and uh, my parents and a few uh, of their friends. And out of nowhere, of course, Elena started crying. She was still a baby at this point. Tati and I, you know, of course, we jumped. We started rocking her back and forth, and you know, we kind of panicked a bit. And I remember there was this guy who was a part of the lunch group, one of our parents' friends. Now, this guy, he's raised, fi he's raised five kids, mind you, <laughs> five kids. And if you have five kids at that point, you know, by your fifth kid, they can be crying bloody murder, and you're fine. <laughs> you're at peace, you know, because you know you're convinced you see, that everything will be all right. You've been through it. You've been through it enough times and you know they're gonna either eat, sleep, or poop and they're gonna stop crying, okay? And everything's gonna be fine. But here's the thing. As much as you tell a first-time parent that, they're not gonna be convinced. There, there's just no way a first-time parent will be as convinced as a fifth-time parent of that. You know, so, so here I am at the verge of tears at this lunch, and I'm, I'm rocking Elena, and there he was, you know, with five kids under his belt, and he's just kind of lounging back at his chair, and, and he said, Tez, calm down, relax, it'll be okay. And I remember thinking to myself, you must be a serial killer. <laughs> you must have a heart of stone, right? My child is dying here, you know, and you're so relaxed. And I was angry, and I was thinking he was so insensitive, but now looking back, he was right. I didn't need to stress, it would be fine, but I haven't gone through it. And there's a level of convincedness that I won't have until I've endured and persevered through everything he has, and I've gone through it. Why is Paul so convinced? Because he's been through it. He's been through it. He's dialogued with all the internal accusations you could ever imagine. He suffered through all the external tragedies you can ever imagine. He's been through it. And he's experienced God keeping him thus far. And at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, he's convinced, I am sure, he says here in verse 38, that nothing can take him away from his love. I'm sure he's convinced in a way that these Roman Christians he's writing to may not be convinced yet. They're panicking. Rome is defeating them. Their own sin is defeating them. And they're on the verge of giving up, and Paul is telling them from the other side, saying, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. You've lost hope that you'll ever change. God can change you. He hasn't changed you yet. Keep going. He's on your team. Everything you have now, you need. And if you don't have it, you don't need it as much as you think you do. How do you know that? Because he's for you, and, and he owns all things and he's given you his most precious 
possession. He's for you. He has his own reasons for his own timing. I've been through it. You're shocked at your own sin and you hate yourself right now? Keep going. His mercy goes deeper. I've been through it. Your life is falling apart. There's trouble left and right. Keep going. He won't let you go. I've been through it. He'll, he'll keep you. He will. Just you see. He will. Keep going. Keep persevering. Keep obeying. And look, I get how at this point it's easy for us to respond, you know, to Paul like I did to that father of five, right? We might be thinking, Paul, how, how insensitive of you. You know, how can you be so calm? Look at my life. It's falling apart because <laughs> he's been through it. He's been through it. And by God's grace, one day, if we keep persevering, having gone through it ourselves, by God's grace, we'll be convinced too. We'll be sure. And it'll show in the way we live our lives. It'll show in the way we treat others. It'll show in the way we spend our money. It'll show in the way we sacrifice for his name. And maybe one day you'll even start doing crazy things, like preach the gospel, even though by doing so, you'll be led like a sheep to the slaughter. But you'll do it, not because you have the willpower strong enough to do it, but because you're convinced. You're convinced that even through tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. Paul never made it to Spain, by the way. He died in Rome in the hands of a Roman sword. But if ever he's convinced of just how wide and long and high and deep and great the love of God is for him in Christ Jesus, his Lord, it's now where he is in glory. So keep going. And by God's grace, all this perseverance, all this right now seemingly dragging of the feet will slowly one day turn into something more, something greater. Keep going, would you? Let's pray. Father, how flimsy our hearts and our commitments are that we would leave you at the drop of a hat. It doesn't take great suffering. <laughs> it takes comfort, something as easy as comfort to lure us away from the race, to make us stop obeying you, stop running after you. Have your mercy upon us. Let your spirit cause our spirit to cry, Abba, Father, in a way that it won't unless your spirit causes it to. Let your spirit cause us to know our identity as your adopted sons and daughters who will inherit your possession. And let that understanding then, that, that, that cry, Abba, Father, help us to be able to answer back to all the internal accusations our sins may be throwing our way. And let it help us persevere through all the external sufferings that this broken world throws our way. And let it help us keep, keep us in the race so that as we persevere one day, after having gone through it, we'll be convinced, as Paul is, that surely there is nothing. Nothing can take us away from the love of the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that assurance will then affect the way we live our lives today. Oh, it'll show up. 
in our calendars. It'll show up in our bank accounts. It'll show up in our marriages. It'll show up in our parenting. It'll show up in our forgiveness and our relationships. It'll show up everywhere. Give us that mercy. Impart upon your fickle children that mercy. And help us to keep on going. For our sake and for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.